This is the CRO Gumbo Podcast by Christian Louvier. What's poppin' CROs? Welcome to the CRO Gumbo Podcast. Today I'm joined by Josh Allen, CRO of Drift. Josh, how you doing? I'm doing great, Christian. How are you today? Doing well. Are you in Boston today or are you traveling the globe somewhere? Nope, in Boston at the uh, the home office. We're we're working toward the end of the quarter here, so just um, working with the team as closely as possible. Got it. How much of a percentage wise ballpark would you say you spend on on the road as a CRO? You know, it's that is a um, I've just found from a career standpoint that's that's stage dependent, and so <laughs> I think I think for me uh, it hasn't, it hasn't been that taxing from a travel standpoint, uh, since I joined about a year ago. So I'm expecting that to increase substantially as we start to branch out internationally and introduce new offices, but it's really been, uh, my travel has kind of been, uh, between Boston and San Francisco and that's about it. Got it. What, 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 um, what's in San Francisco? We have, we have an office out there. Uh, we have oh, an okay. office. Yeah. We have a satellite office with about 30 people that we're continuing to grow out. And, you know, frankly, it's the epicenter of our customer base. <laughs> oh, it is. We, okay. Yeah. We have, we have a lot of customers, uh, in the Bay area. And so it's a great place to go to spend time with the team. And then also you, know, you can walk outside and within a couple of blocks, probably hit 25 to 30 customers. That's that's amazing. That's uh when I started and um when I started my first career in college as a media sales for Viacom and I was like, why do I need to be anywhere else but visiting customers in New York? <laughs> like, cause you exactly. just walk up and down Madison Avenue. Um, uh, Josh, what um why is why do you feel like the bulk of customers is out there? Is it just because San Francisco companies are early adopters, or is it uh, is that a specific uh, strategy? No, I I don't know that I'd call it a specific strategy. I think we have like many in uh, in marketing and technology sales specifically. I think a lot of the, the the companies where our product in particular plays well um, are places where they're comfortable integrating into their existing tech stack, whether it's with their marketing automation system or their CRM, where Drift plays very well. So. You know the the companies that we've been able to grow with in the enterprises. Uh, we have a we have a large percentage of of technology companies that have adopted us and are just, I'd say, in the last couple of quarters, uh, starting to branch out more actively into other verticals that aren't tech. So a lot of our early customers where we got traction uh, are in the Bay Area. Got it. And Josh, for people listening, before we get too far into this, that, you know, I feel like in the SaaS space, every, you guys are uh, creating a category and uh, big time trendsetters, but if they're not in there at a high level, how would you describe what Drift does? Yeah. So Drift, uh, Drift essentially plays in the space of conversational marketing. And uh, if anybody's read the book, you know, it's, we actually literally wrote the book on it. Um, But conversational marketing is, really trying to engage in the B2B world is trying to engage with our customers' customers in a conversation. So when they hit the website, being able to initiate a conversation that is of high value to a potential buyer, to be able to really get them to an answer as quickly as possible. Um, Conversational marketing is using multiple channels to do that. So whether that's a chat engagement, a video engagement, uh, a voice engagement or an email engagement. It's about really initiating and engaging and maintaining a conversation with your potential buyer. 
Got it. And uh, is it is it still? I remember when Drift. Uh, well, I don't know if it's when they started, but I remember one of the key pieces of content that I read about it was that the CEO David Cancel basically challenged the VP of marketing with getting rid of forms because there was a lot of uh, drop off. Is that is that still a real big part of the story? Yeah, it's it's. Uh that was one of the big splashes it, and you know a la what salesforce did with um with no software mm-hmm. we did with no forms and it was very much the play to say you know what if you engage in a conversation as opposed to just expecting somebody to come to your form fill page and fill it out where you've probably had the same conversion rate for years and years and years and you're able to move it by basis points by changing the colors or maybe having fewer text fields to fill out or whatever it is. But it, it, the, the real truth of it is the conversion rate probably hasn't changed all that much. So why not eliminate it and use a chat bot to engage in a conversation? So you're, acti- you're actively exchanging information back and forth uh, to, help buddy, to help somebody figure out at their moment of highest intent whether or not what you're offering might be the right solution. Because the problem with forms, it's, not, it's yes, it's about the conversion rate of the form fill itself, mm-hmm. but it's also all of the stuff that happens after that form gets submitted, mm-hmm. where it funnels into a marketing automation system and maybe triggers an email or it ends up going through an arbitrary scoring system and potentially goes to a sales rep, might go into an SDR, might go into a nurture flow, or you're going to get a bunch of other emails because you're not qualified based on what the company says. And so, we're, so I think it's only 58% of companies are actually following up on the leads that come in through those form fills. So there's a whole tranche of people who are interested that never get a response or don't get answers. And so we were trying to really eliminate that and, and get people responses as close to now as possible so they can make a go, no go decision on whether or not to take a next step with the company. Okay. Um, I want to get into your background a little bit. So I can't believe I'm saying this. When I started the podcast and started scheduling interviews, I expected to have a bunch of uh, CROs who had, you know, ri- risen through the sales ranks. Uh, and actually, you're my first. Um, <laughs> so, um, the uh, it, which is shocking to me. But uh, you know, I had people who they started at one position, realized it wasn't for them, and then went into sales. But you're the first one who started in sales. Um, was that by design or you just kind of fell into it? Cause it says on LinkedIn anyway, that you started at studying government. <laughs> so, yep. um, uh, yep. was sales, a, a, a conscious decision? Well, as you can tell, um, from my 19 year old decision in college, uh, <laughs> with the liberal arts degree of government legal studies. No, I was not, I was not intending to come into sales and more so because I didn't, I didn't really know anything about it. I, um, a bit of my background. I am the I'm the first uh, on my dad's side of the family in four generations to not be a lobster fisherman. So, really? Yeah. So my you know wow. my my childhood was spent on the back of the boat or working with my dad on gear or just kind of being around the fishing industry. So and I can you get before before we got go deeper on that? Can you tell like because I I've been, I know this exists in New England, but if you're not from that area. Can you talk a little bit about like what part of the area you grew up in and, um, you know, the fishing industry that you experienced and that your family's been a part of? Yeah, of course. So it, it's, you know, I grew up uh, in a town called Saugus, which is about I don't know, 10 miles north of Boston. 
And, uh, and so the, the fishing, so a lot of people know of Gloucester and that whole area, uh, we're 20 minutes away from Gloucester. And so there's this whole kind of Northeastern seaboard of Massachusetts where fishing is a very heavy industry. Mm-hmm. And, um, but my family's fishing history goes back to Nova Scotia and ultimately back to Ireland. If you trace back the four generations wow. of, of where they were doing lobster fishing and, once, um, you know, two generations ago had emigrated to Canada and were fishing there. My grandfather moved down to the Boston area, really following the cycle of the lobsters because they, they're known to cycle every 25 to 30 years in terms of population. And everyone knows the coast of Maine is kind of, um, mm-hmm. you know, the epicenter for where most of the action happens. And so my grandfather moved to Boston kind of following the lobsters. And that's, that's where my, my family is now pretty deeply rooted. So there's a strong, there, there was a strong fishing industry here. It's changed a lot in the last couple of decades due to regulations, overfishing, um, different kind of, uh, commercial approaches to how they're processing, like the big plants they have in Maine. So it has changed a fair bit since, uh, since I was younger, but my, I remember my dad telling me at a young age, uh, whatever you do, don't be a lobster fisherman. <laughs> <laughs> and was he being tongue in cheek or he was dead serious? No, he was serious. He, he, he wanted me to use my head. Um, Got it. It was, you know, I think it, it's, it's a, it's a very physical job and something that, that takes a toll. And as he's gotten older, you know, that, that it's a job that beats you up over time. So it's, uh, I'm, I'm glad he pushed me to go uh, and use my head get a degree in college and then uh, figure out how I could use those skills to do something. How long did you ever work on the boat when you were, you know, a teenager or younger than that? Yeah, I started when I was 10 and uh, I would ban lobsters. So essentially when you, when the, when the lobsters come out of the pots, you Mm -hmm. have to put the rubber bands on the claws. Somebody Mm -hmm. has to do that. That was me. I was the one who was doing it. And I would pick them up, cross the claws and put the bands on. And, uh, and I did that for a bunch of summers in a row. Um, and it was, uh, you know, it's, a, it's a good way to learn how to work hard when you're, uh, when you're young. Got it. Yeah. It's like, uh, it's kind of like my version of working on construction sites. So, there you go. Yeah. Exactly. Um, well, I hated that. Okay. <laughs> uh, I was just thinking about how much caulk I have to scrape off the ground. I hated that. Um, and like while we're on college, uh, sorry, sorry. So um, before I go into the college thing, so you were saying, uh, you were telling me about how you went into sales as your first job because you made the great decision, you said, to go into legal studies at 19. <laughs> yeah, it was, you know, I, I thought for, for some reason, I thought I was either going to go into politics or become a lawyer. And then when I graduated college and reality set in, uh, I had done an internship actually at the state house the summer before and realized that politics was not my thing. Um, I think I was too brutally honest to, to make it in politics. And mm-hmm. then the idea of taking on even more debt and going to law school uh, after graduating from, from Bowdoin College after four years just uh, scared the daylights out of me. So I said, you know what, I'm gonna go to work so I can start to pay back my loans um, make sure I can get an apartment, get out of the house, start to live on my own. And so for me, it was the decision to go into sales, um, was as simple as, uh, I had to figure out a way to make money and start to pay my bills. And, uh, what I learned quickly. So it was actually my first job was a guy that I played lacrosse with in college. He said, you know, just come in, check it out. 
it's a way to kind of use your, your competitive edge as an athlete and, uh, and, and really, you know, try to separate yourself from the pack. So that's, that's sort of how I walked into it. Got it. And you mentioned, you mentioned lacrosse. Did, um, did you play your, your whole life or you kind of discovered it later before you, you know, like in high school or something like that. And then you played in college. Yeah. I didn't pick up a stick till I was a freshman in high school. Got it. And, okay. Um, and then it was, you know, I was, I had identified as a, as a hockey player, as an ice hockey player all, <laughs> all through life growing up. And then, um, when I got to high school, really fell in love with the sport of lacrosse, uh, because I loved field sports, but also really enjoyed the physical sports and the cross was a great combination of both. And so, um, yeah, I played, uh, for four years in high school and then that was what I ended up focusing on when I got to college. Got it. Um, and Josh, you went to, um, there's, there's so much, uh, I could, I could, I could dive in on, but one aspect I really wanted to hit was with your experience with a company called log me in. Mm-hmm. Um, and, what was interesting to me is not only the, the tenure there, how long you were there, but uh, you left and came back. I was just wondering if you could bring us through that journey as, as much as possible at a high level. Yeah, it's funny. There's actually an article that I think you can still search uh, huh? on. Uh, I think it was on, it was in the Boston Globe or Boston.com about companies who willingly accept boomerangs <laughs> and, and people who leave and come back. And, uh, and our head of, uh, our head of HR at the time that logged me in, um, had wanted to do this, uh, article or be part of the article. And she actually is our VP of HR and talent here at, at Drift. Really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, but the, so yes, I had, I worked in, in total, uh, for 10 years at logged me in and there were essentially two five-year stints, two separate five-year stints. And the first five years was so different from the second five years and that I was employee number 44 at log me in. So, um, going in, I had no idea what it was going to become. It was just a, it was a good sales job with a, with a fun sales team and a product that was, uh, kind of better, faster, cheaper. So it was mm-hmm. disrupting what Citrix and WebEx were doing in the market. Okay. And, um, but had no idea what that was going to grow into. And so I came in as a salesperson, as an individual contributor and worked my way up into team lead and, and manager of one of the sales teams and, and got five years in, we had gone public uh, three years into my tenure there. And then two years after that, I was kind of like, Oh, that was, you know, that was pretty fun. I, I want to do it again. <laughs> and so thought that, you know, you could just go find another tech company with the right ingredients and be able to go through that process. You didn't know how good it. you had it. <laughs> oh man, I'll tell you, like the, uh, it, 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 sometimes I think it takes leaving and you have to be on the outside to be able to look back in and appreciate what you had built as a company. Mm-hmm. And it, it did, it took that, it took, it took me going out to see what we had built. And then ultimately there were uh, a couple of other things that, that changed as it related to just the leadership in the organization that had turned over actually during the, the five months I was out on the sales side, on the go-to-market side. And so uh, the person who took over global sales was somebody that I had a lot of respect for. And, and uh, he ended up reaching out to have me come back in, um, in a different capacity. And so after that, it was, uh, I got a tremendous amount of exposure to things that I hadn't seen before, like, um, like moving to Dublin to build out and open our international office, uh, running our user services team, which was frontline sales and support. 
Um, so it just, it, it gave me a few extra pieces of that, of that trivial pursuit pie that I was missing when it came. And what are the odds you get to move back to your home country for, I mean, you were, your family was in, in, in seafood <laughs> and, yeah. and you end up in software sales, something that didn't even exist when your family started in Dublin. And then you end up running Amea. I mean, it, that's crazy. It was, it really, you know, I went through that same mental process. It did, it kind of felt like a, a coming home or full circle process for me. And, and even being able to see the places where, you know, my family had emigrated from and uh, pulling uh, death certificates on some of the family members as you know, um, other people in my family were looking to actually get their passports, get their European passports. There, it, was, it was fascinating. It was a really fascinating experience. Um, when you were, which stint at LogMeIn did y'all go, they go public? The first one. So I joined in 2006 when we were really, really small and you know, only had uh, 40, like I said, I was number 44. Um, so our sales and marketing team was based in the Boston area. And then our entire engineering team was out of Budapest, Hungary. We, uh, we went public in 2009. So down market, there were not a lot of IPOs that year, but we had a very strong unit economics as a company and were able to kind of, you know, shine um, and almost stand alone that year. So it was, uh, yeah, it was during that first stint. And again, it was like, I remember it happening and not necessarily having been around long enough to appreciate the gravity mm-hmm. of, of how difficult it is to get a company to that point where they're even IPO eligible. I think one of the things I learned from various startups aside from, you know, picking the wrong ones, like you said earlier, is it just, it, there's different pivot points at a company that it is a different skill set when it comes to management, um, which again, I have no idea what happened from your first stint to the second, but that usually has something to do with it. Um, what do you think is required to, what are the, the traits of like a management team and say a company that's less than 50 employees versus one that's getting close to, you know, 500 or, or more? It was more, it was kind of a changing of the guard. It was, there was okay. a, there was a team that had been there for the early days through the startup phase through IPO. And then that, that sort of um, product market fit and scale team passed the baton off to, uh, to kind of the second phase of scale and then ultimately what turned into the sustained team. Um, so okay. it, was, it was this sort of pivot point of just, uh, I think, you know, the people that had been there that had made their money through the IPO and were really, you know, they cared about figuring out the build part early days and kind mm-hmm. of taking all the risk and hopefully capturing as much reward as possible, handing it off to the team that want to come in and, and, um, and continue to scale something that was already you know, 160, 170 million in revenue and kind of grow that up to 250, 300, ultimately up to the point where they ended up uh, merging with Citrix Online a few years ago. So to answer your question, the difference between the two, I think is it's, it's, a, it's a different skill set, but it's also a different want most times. I think it's, it's the people who identify as, you know, uh, being comfortable with the idea of, of not knowing how to do something and wanting to be the ones who are building out the initial processes, even if they're the ones that, 
you know, you take your first sales process and you crumple it up and throw it in the garbage six months later because you're either uh, you have more salespeople or you have a different need in terms of selling to enterprise versus SMB or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they, I think they tend to be people who are just kind of go-getters, very hard workers, um, not always, but sometimes a little less detail oriented. And, <laughs> and it, you know, it's just about getting in front of it. And this is really on the go-to-market side, but just, just sure. about it, getting as many at-bats as possible and learning as you go, learning as you go. Uh, and then I think you have the team that comes in that is more kind of call it like second phase scale or even getting, you know, building it so that the engine is consistent, predictable, repeatable kind of plug and play. Um, that group tends to be a little more analytical uh, and, and left brained on taking a scientific approach. And the two tend to cross over in this midpoint between call it, you know, 50 and 150 million, depending on the type of business. And then batons tend to get passed off and teams tend to tend to change. Uh, Josh, you've moved. So you mentioned process a second, a second ago. And, um, you know, you, when I was at least on LinkedIn, it's saying that you, you, you crushed as an inside sales rep at, at log me in. And then, I mean, from there, you just kind of went up, um, is there some type of process or something that's built into your DNA that you're aware of that um, allow, has allowed you to be successful where each stop you've been at? Um, well, it's funny because it, it, LinkedIn does this funny thing where it, it makes everyone look like they have this, this beautiful ladder. <laughs> and and the way the way I've explained it to teams in the past is like I would exp- I would actually define if I could put something on LinkedIn that better define my career. It would look more like a shoots and ladders board where you kind of, there's a, there's a whole lot of lateral from, from left to right or right to left. And then you get the occasional bump and you move up and you take on more responsibility. And then once in a while you hit a shoot and slide back down. And you know, that, that certainly happened to me a couple of times, like in my, my first management role, uh, I was actually pulled out of that by my VP of sales and the insights, the inside sales manager role. Yeah. Yeah. The first inside sales manager role, uh, it, it was, you know, happened for a couple of reasons. One is uh, frankly, I just wasn't very good at it and, uh, and had to learn the hard way that I was spending too much time, um, trying to defend the people on my team, as opposed to really acting as the pivot point between the company and the team mm-hmm. to explain bi-directionally what was going on. Uh, I was spending too much team with the mind of an individual contributor of mm-hmm. uh, like it was my job to defend my team and, and try to go to bat for them on every little thing. And that was something that uh, once I learned that it was kind of when I, it, you know, just sort of all clicked after that. I was like, no, as a, as a manager, as a leader, you are responsible for, for really being the liaison between your team and the company and using the information that they're getting on the front lines from their customers to help inform what marketing is doing, what product is doing, what engineering is building, and then vice versa. It's taking what the company is giving you for direction, strategy, um, vertical approach, whatever it is, and explaining to the team why that's happening and, and really serving as that person who can go back and forth between the two. And I was only going, I was a one-way street at that yep. point. So it, I had to learn that the hard way. <laughs> yeah, it's a, 
it's definitely a weird paradigm shift because you're, and then you're also, especially if you got promoted internally, because you're like, wait, these aren't my friends anymore. <laughs> or they're not yeah. my peers. Like that always ends up being a weird conundrum too. And um, I, I say that to, you know, a, a, between log me in and car gurus and drift, you know, you see that happen time and time again, where people are promoted into a leadership role for the first time. And inevitably, I, I tell everybody the same thing that move from peer to leader is the most difficult step you will take mm-hmm. once you, uh, because you're, you're, you're having to essentially walk a tightrope between friendships and the way you were, and then having to become uh, a representative of the company as it relates to like passing down information, coaching and developing, providing real actionable feedback to help somebody get better. And that can be really hard. What is uh, I've had two CROs that have run divisions in APAC on the show. Mm. What is the what do you see as the big one of the big differences with companies from a sales perspective or even speed to market um, perspective outside of the U.S. You know, it's it's um, I think the the most interesting takeaway I had when going to Europe is that it was very easy as an ignorant expat American to look at Europe the same way we looked at the U.S. as just being, you know, essentially contiguous states. And what Mm -hmm. you learn real quick when you get into Europe is that the selling, the go-to-market and selling and even product support motions, uh, the difference between what happens in Germany and what happens in France and what happens in the U.K. and what happens in the Netherlands and what happens in in the United Arab Emirates and Israel, it's like they're... They're very different. And I, I gained an appreciation for it very quickly because it was, you know, it's easy. I think it's easy for a fast-growing SaaS company to organically grow in markets like the UK and Ireland and the Nordics and the Netherlands and places that are traditionally comfortable buying in English from American companies. Mm-hmm. But, it, but as soon as you start to get into a place like Germany, for example, um, Germany, like there's along with like the localization of your material and how you're approaching the market, what you're doing with your data and whether mm-hmm. or not that's living on German <laughs> soil or passing outside of German borders, uh, actually having salespeople on the ground in Germany, having an office in Germany, like these things matter um, in that market. And it took it took some time to develop the appreciation and the understanding and the realization that if you're truly going to grow Europe, um, you, you need to approach the countries, especially the big ones, uh, individually and have strategies for them. So I think, you know, in, in looking at what we're going to be doing here at Drift as we're growing the company internationally, it's a much more, we can take a much more phased approach on what that means, where, where you go from kind of an organic core team that is just focused on servicing what we're already driving for interest in leads and develop what your in-market strategy is with satellite offices in different countries and which markets you want to focus on. Um, that is, uh, you realize you have to be very deliberate in that approach as opposed to thinking it's going to happen by just having, op- just opening an international office in London or Dublin or Amsterdam or Berlin. 
just quick, quick story. I remember, I remember having uh, drinks it's probably about two years ago when the whole GDPR thing first came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and somebody asked me like, how is this going to affect us? Blah, 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 blah. I was like, well, I think in the States, it's going to be like a little bit more serious version of like Y2K. Um, <laughs> but like uh, in Europe, like it's, it's crazy. It's just night and day. Like when they make a law like that, they, they mean it. And I didn't mean that, you know, privacy standards aren't going to raise in the U S but there's always some way around it, right? Like there's always like a gray area or something. I guess it's just the way U.S. laws are in general. But you're right, man. In, in Europe, it's just, it's a totally different animal. I mean, it can be, it can, it can bring down your company. It's that serious. Yeah, yeah and they, they've, uh, Europe, to their credit, has always been ahead of the curve yep. uh, as it relates to, especially the protection of the individual. Like when it comes to personally identifiable information, um, data flow and who has access to that data like even going back to safe harbor which i think was in 2012 or 2013 like they they have um, really tried to regulate uh and protect their citizens um which I, i think is pretty cool it just makes it a little bit harder for american SaaS companies because you have to adjust to the realities of the fact that they are they take it serious and there, there aren't ways around it without doing the hard work to accredit yourself to those policies they have in place um, or really commit yourself to the localization of your company, let alone your product, but you have to localize your company to do well there. So a little bit on that, that topic, Josh, when you're, when you think back to maybe when you were making your first sales hires, whether it was at card gurus or log me in, uh, what is, what has changed in terms of what you look for in sales reps and say the past eight to 10 years? Uh, interestingly, not, not a lot. Uh, okay. and, and, and the reason is, you know, what has changed are, um, I think some of the, some of the experiences and the tools that people use coming into sales roles today, whether it's, you know, using a tool like, Outreach or sales loft, um, or even you know, using a tool like Drift uh, to conduct your your interactions with customers using Zoom. Like we use Zoom like crazy for you know, it's essentially replaced the phone for us at Drift. We don't really use the phone all that much here. It's really more focused on chat and email and Zoom calls. Um, so, so I think from a tool exposure standpoint, uh, and and you know, in the last call it. 10 to 12 years, the emphasis on companies trying to move toward a more predominant inside sales motion versus traditional field or enterprise sales motion mm-hmm. um, has, has required people to become you know, pretty good on the phone when having conversations and making the most of the fact that if you have somebody's attention, you need to make it count because you're not sitting directly in front of them. When I'm interviewing people, uh, I am looking at the same it's the same intrinsic characteristics, the same, like who somebody is as a person is going to be most representative of whether or not they're going to have success selling. And frankly, I don't think that's changed. That's, you know, it's, there are the teachables. There's all right forecasting process, uh, the persona that you're selling to the pitch deck, how to enter your deal on the CRM, the sales process methodology, like all that stuff is teachable. Mm-hmm. And that's what you see on people's resumes. It's like, 
I hit my quota. I'm trained in this methodology. Is this sales process? I'm forecasted at 101% accuracy, like whatever it is. But what you don't see on people's resumes are related to, are they a curious person? Are they coachable? Are they resilient? What's their drive like? Like, do they have integrity? Are they self-aware? Do they have emotional intelligence? Are they problem solvers? Like the things that uh, are pretty inherent within someone and you, you learn at a very young age, a lot of these skills, they can be shaped over time. But to change somebody's level of curiosity or drive or their integrity as a manager, mm-hmm. that's a hard thing to do. So, so from an interview standpoint, I'm really trying to suss out those types of characteristics and details. Um, because if you get somebody who checks the box on, on those types of characteristics, you'll be able to teach them the other stuff. Got it. That's, that's great. Very insightful. Well, Josh, I, uh, there, we may have to do another interview at some point when the quarter's over. Cause, uh, I, I mean, honestly, I could talk to you about things all day, but the one, one more question I wanted to get to, uh, is, you know, the CRO role, chief revenue officer role to me is still, you know, I'm fascinated by it because I feel like it's been out there for about a decade, but it's only now starting to be defined, I would say within the past two years or taken seriously at least. Um, and, for whatever reason, I remember when you became CRO of Drift, I think because I was a customer at the time, but when the CEO, Dave Cancel, um, uh, did he approach you with that title? Did you pitch it that way? You know, can you talk any about the evolution of that? Because I don't, it didn't exist before you, I don't think. Correct. Yeah, it did not exist uh, before me. Uh, I can, I can actually still picture the conversation uh, with David in a, a, a local Starbucks where we were just, we're, like, we were talking more. Isn't general. that like sacrilegious in Boston? Are y'all supposed to go to like Duncan? <laughs> I, it's, uh, I, I know I'm probably not supposed to say this, but I go back and forth between the two of them pretty okay. freely. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> uh, so we, we, were, we were sitting at a Starbucks and it was really, you know, he and I had, had known each other a little bit from a few years prior as it related to just kind of, networking and recommendations on people and then it was more um uh some of the some of the way that they were structuring the sales team and just kind of helping with some ideas around how to approach it and then uh we were just sitting down having coffee one day and he's like you know i'm 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 in the process uh i need to hire a cro and that was the first time that 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 title um had been mentioned so wow. it, it wasn't something that I, <clears throat> that I brought to him. And I think even now when I talk to, I talk to other CROs uh, quite a bit and it's funny because the, there's not like there, the continuity in the roles is still, I think, ambiguous um, in terms of what people are responsible for. And I remember, mm-hmm. I remember going through the interview process here in DG asked me, he's like, he's like, Hey, in your mind, does like, is a CRO responsible for marketing? And I'm, 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 I'm sure. And, and I'm looking at the marketing team here. I'm like, look, whatever you guys are doing, I don't want to touch that thing. Cause that is a, like, this is what Drift is known for. That's what we do. Yeah. Um, I want to focus on my expertise, which has really been around uh, selling and partnerships and alliances and, and kind of the biz dev side of it. And so um, 
that has really been where my focus is. But I have talked to others where, you know, whether they own customer success or marketing, uh, some have a tie into finance and FP&A. And so there's, it's like revenue can be, uh, it can be woven into quite a few things. And I think a lot of it depends on the background and the experience of the person who's coming into the organization, but also the, the talent and the experience that exists in the organization. So, you know, for me, I, I was comfortable coming in and understanding that for this role, the need of the company based on the stage we're at was really around developing the predictability of the sales motion and the consistency of the leadership and the hiring process um, and, and making sure that we were getting to a place where we could, we could execute as close to consistent as possible. Um, that's my job. That's what I focus on is really trying to build out in a, in a very fast growth organization, um, that has, uh, that has continued to move itself up market in terms of, of focusing, uh, a lot of our time and attention on the, on the mid market and the enterprise where drift is incredibly valuable. Got it. Um, all right, Josh, uh, real quick, quick hit Q and a answers are meant to be quick, but, uh, you know, feel free to go on if you want. Um, how do you get your lacrosse or hockey fill these days? I don't, I have, um, <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm actually, I'm actually a co-owner of a CrossFit gym. So I've, I've taken all of that energy and put it into the sport of fitness CrossFit. Do you, do you watch the Bruins at least? Oh uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The Bruins are of, of all of the four Boston teams. The Bruins are my top team. I was, uh, unfortunately at game seven last year and watched them lose in the yeah. cup finals. But yes, yeah. I am a diehard Bruins fan. What an era of Boston sports you've grown up in. That's crazy. It's, um, it's crazy is right. Um, who's a mentor that you probably, that you have, but probably doesn't know it. Uh, well, he may know it. Um, he's, he's currently the, uh, the chief customer officer. I think is his title now at Envision. Uh, Seth Shaw, who, uh, I worked, he, when I came back to log me in, in 2011, he was running global sales there. And a lot of the, uh, a lot of the responsibility I took on was the result of, I think him having belief in me and, and seeing something at the time that he thought I'd be able to do it. And so it was, I think a lot of the, the teaching and the trust from him, um, made him a, a solid mentor and probably one of the people I would point to that was most impactful in, in me being, uh, able to do the things I get to do now. Cool. What's a blind spot you had in your twenties that you can clearly see now? Ooh. Uh, <laughs> I had like 30. So if you can think of one, <laughs> so. yeah, well, that's what I'm trying to narrow it down. Yeah. <laughs> I got a barrel full. Uh, I would say, I think I have, I have developed, especially on the, so speaking on the business side of things, I have developed such an appreciation for, um, how difficult it is to build a fast growing business that, you know, that matters, that has a product that matters to the, to the people who are purchasing it. It is an incredibly hard thing to do because there are so many variables and ingredients that go into building that from leadership to product, to timing and product market fit and acceptance. And so, um, I feel so fortunate to have gone from log me in to car gurus to, to drift, like each of those companies, 
has done something special in their own right. And so I am, I am incredibly grateful for that. Josh, if uh, you were starting for the Bruins and got introed onto the ice, what would your song be? Today, um, uh, today I think I would go with, with uh, Can't Hold Us by Macklemore. Nice. Uh, if you could write one thing on a billboard in Times Square, what would it be? Get comfortable with uncomfortable. What is your uh, favorite curse word? Shit. <laughs> What's a profession other than your own that you would like to attempt? Ooh, uh, professional musician. Any particular instrument? Guitar or vocals or both. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Good job. Josh, if someone wants to reach you, what's the best way for them to do that? My email is simple. It's josh at drift.com. Uh, or you can there was not one Josh before you got there? No, there was. It was, I, was uh, I, don't, I don't know how I ended up with it. but I <laughs> okay. uh, Josh Allen, thanks so much for coming on the CRO Gumbo podcast. Thank you very much, Christian. Thanks for listening to CRO Gumbo. If you are having trouble with your revenue generating processes and would like to discuss one of our workshops, text CRO to 555 That's CRO 555-888. Now go innovate. Looking for a better way to get up out of bed instead of getting on the internet and checking a new hit me get up. First shot, come strut walking. A little bit of humble, a little bit of cautious. Somewhere between like Rocky and Cosby's for the game. Nope, nope, y'all can't copy up. Bad, moonwalking. And this here is our party. My posse's been on Broadway and we did it all way. Chrome music. I shed my skin and put my bones into everything I record to it. And yet I'm on. Let that stage light go and shine on down. Got that Bob Barker suit game and Plinko in my style. Money, stay on my craft and stick around for those pounds But I do that to pass the torch and put on for my town Trust me, on my I-N-D-E-P-E-N-D-E-N-T shit hustling Chasing dreams since I was 14 with the four-track bussin' Halfway across that city with the back-back-back-back-back crush it Labels out here, now they can't tell me nothing We give that to the people, spread it across the country Labels out here, now they can't tell me nothing We give it to the people, spread it across the country Can we go back, this is the moment, tonight is the night We'll fight till it's over, so we put our hands up Like the ceiling can't hold us, like the ceiling can't hold us Can we go back, this is the moment Grew up really wanna go fronts, but that's what you get when Wu Tang raised you. Y'all can't stop me. Go 
hard like I got an 808 in my heartbeat And I'm eating at the beat like it gave a little speed to a great white shark on shark We rock, time to go off, gone, two says goodbye I got a world to see, and my girl, she wanna see Rome Caesar, make you a believer now, I never ever did it for a throne That validation comes from giving it back to the people now Sing this song and it goes like Raise those hands, this is our party We came here to live life like nobody was watching I got my city right behind me If I fall, they got me, learn from that failure Gain humility and then we keep marching Can I we said, go 